Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this New Year's Eve with an analysis of the year we are ending and the critical year about to begin as the political realignment in this country changes with the previously sought-after centre all but disappeared as the GOP is now a far-right party. Joining us to discuss this and the headwinds Biden is facing in 2024 is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is the former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Then we'll speak with a recovering Republican about his party's embrace of fascist language and a leader who admires Hitler and the worst dictators on the planet, like Putin and Kim Jong-un. Joining us is Mike Lofgren, who has spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as an analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted, And we'll discuss his article, At Common Dreams, Stolen Elections, Then and Now. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions. So I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now on this New Year's Eve is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He was formerly managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. And he has an article at the American Prospect, What We Don't Measure But Should, The Case for GDP Plus GDD. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Good to be with you, Ian, at the end of this very long year and hopefully a brighter one ahead. Well, let's talk about the year that uh, was and the year that's about to be, which many people think is the most uh, critical year in American Mm -hmm. history since perhaps the Civil War in terms of the threat to democracy itself posed by Donald Trump. And given your stellar credentials on the left as having been the managing editor of Ramparts, co-founder of Mother Jones, and on the editorial board of The Nation... Liz Cheney is out there on the on the stump flogging her book saying that we are sleepwalking into dictatorship. So mm-hmm. at the most Trump has a maybe thirty five percent of the of the electorate. What about the sixty five percent? Is that what Liz Cheney's talking about? Are are we sleepwalking? And if so, we can't afford it. I don't think we're sleepwalking. I was just looking at some uh, polling numbers that uh, asked uh, Americans, what do they feel when they think about politics? And uh, 65% of Americans say they feel exhausted. Uh, I don't think that's the same thing as sleepwalking. I think they're aware, but they're literally exhausted by the volume and velocity of charges and countercharges that have 
filled the airwaves and filled the the uh, digital uh, equivalent uh, for the last several years. Well, that, of course, is a tactic developed by Vladimir Putin and his political technician, as they call it, Vyslav Zerkov, which is to just exhaust and confuse people with the book by Peter Pomerantsev, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So mm-hmm. is that a tactic? Has Trump borrowed that from from Putin, just to sort of whipsaw well, everybody? Well, he has, yeah, but I mean, let's, let's, let's look. I mean, the 22 election, the midterm, did not go well for the forces of the far right. I mean, I think that that was a very strong showing. We've just had a recent off-year election last month uh, in uh, a number of states. And once again, uh, Democrats and lefts and liberals uh, came out well ahead in almost all of the races in contested places where it really matters, uh, whether it's a Supreme Court justice for Pennsylvania or it's Ohio turning down an abortion, uh, anti-abortion uh, constitutional amendment uh, uh, or a Democrat like uh, Bashir uh, getting elected to uh, governorship of reelected to governorship of Kentucky. Uh, I, I think two things are happening. I think people are exhausted by this, but I think that the evidence based on turnout and also outcomes in the last couple of elections doesn't argue for a populace that is willingly going to let itself be sleepwalked to the slaughterhouse. So do you think, though, that Biden's poll numbers are alarming in terms of whether you think this they is are, a- they are they are Ian, but let me just also push back which is those they have been crappy numbers for a long time and conventional wisdom would indicate that if your president has really lousy numbers that should be showing up down ballot in off your elections and once again in 2022 and then uh, in the uh, off your elections in places like virginia this year that's not showing up democrats are doing well um, and certainly doing better than Republicans in all but solidly red states. And, you know, I, I want to just emphasize that there we may need a new slogan, which is called keep quiet and carry on um, <laughs> that people, people just aren't, aren't willing to talk about or listen to a lot of the things that you and I think are absolutely important to discuss but have been discussed by so many people in such rapid-fire fashion, speaking from so many different perspectives, that I think many, many Americans feel that they're going to quietly make their decision. And I think that's right. I think most, more than 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when we were electing uh, leaders with a very, very low turnout, we're going to see another round of high turnout, whether it's going to be as high as 16 or 20? I don't know. Um, And I think that one of the things the Democrats have to worry about is turnout. And we should talk about that in just a moment and why turnout could be affected. But I wouldn't read the tea leaves yet as giving a univocal uh, shout out to an imminent dictatorship. I think that the dangers are absolutely there and we can't overlook them for a moment. But I'm not yet convinced that the populace is willing to elect uh, that dictatorship. Well, I guess you, a minute ago you were referring to the curse of cable news, 
But what about this amazing disconnect? And it puzzles me, and I'm interested in your take on this, Richard. Why is it that Biden doesn't get credit for amazing accomplishments for a guy with such a small majority? He's gotten mm-hmm. so much done, and, and mm-hmm. some historians have suggested that it's probably the most effective four years since Roosevelt in terms of getting at stuff least done. Since, I would say at least since Johnson in 64, 65. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, Roosevelt, yes, but I mean, for the short period that Biden's been in office, I think the apt comparison is the, 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 the Johnson years when he's filling out Kennedy's term and then the beginnings of his one term in 64, sort of the 64 through 65, early 66, where we got civil rights, voting rights, we got uh, war on poverty, we got incredible investments beginning in environment. I mean, there's just a, a range of things. So I, I think a couple of things. Biden is coming into office after four years of Trump. Trump is coming into office after eight years of Obama. Obama's coming in after eight years of Bush, Bush after eight years of, uh, of uh, Clinton. And I think that, you know, the sum of those years since 1992, and one could even push back to 1998, but certainly from 1992 on have been filled with the kind of vitriolic divisiveness that you can see Newt Gingrich introducing into the House when he takes over in 1994 and, you know, has his spurious contract with America and really begins the process of the radical polarization. There was certainly division in the Congress under Reagan and even under Carter, but uh, the realignment wasn't really complete until the 1990s, where the Republicans finally controlled the South and began to essentially make themselves into an all-conservative party rather than a conservative-moderate mixed party, which it had been for the previous hundred years. And so we've had this ongoing period in which you have, you know, Clinton with all of the troubling personal peccadilloes, if you will, and the the promise of being a Democrat, but not a, a Democrat that most people recognize as a Democrat. He's this thing called the neoliberal. He's the Wall Street Democrat. Then you get George Bush with his massive tax cuts and then a pernicious war after a violent and heinous attack on the United States, but one that ties us down not only in Afghanistan, but Iraq for what turned out to be the longest wars in American history, which no one, I think, would honestly say we have won. In fact, the, the residue of Iraq and of Afghanistan seems to me to be called into question what war has the United States won since 1945? So yeah, I, that hasn't I, I stopped the military-industrial complex, though, has it? Absolutely, does not. But <laughs> right, failure doesn't disqualify in this political system. But no. all, I guess what I'm trying to say is this: this whole uh, denigration of politics and politicians as a strategy within politics and as a reaction. By the uh, within the public to politics has been really accelerated since the 1990s, and Biden is harvesting the bitter fruit. That, I'm trying to answer your question: Why the low numbers? People, I think, aren't willing to express 
an, an engagement or a trust of any leader at this point. They're keep waiting for the other shoe to drop for the keep waiting for the new expose, keep waiting for the program to go off the rails, keep waiting for the new crisis. I mean, when you think of the number of financial crises that we've lived through just in the 21st century and the first, you know, less than a quarter of the 21st century, it's phenomenal. We had the the dot-com bust, which was pretty traumatic, followed by the worst recession since the Great Depression, followed by a COVID uh, uh, fiasco economically that has, I think, people reeling, wondering what it is that is the future of the United States economically. And so that is at the core of people's apprehension about trusting politicians and the workings of politics. But I also, as I say, I don't think they're therefore ready to turn it over to a dictatorial, uh, and I don't want to call it a solution, and a, a dictatorial assault. But what explains this bizarre contrast between Biden, who's accomplished an awful lot and doesn't get credit for it, and yep. this do-nothing Congress that this just ended, and it's got, I think they only passed 47 bills. Right. It's, a, it's a record. Right. And, but, right. Low, but instead of, the, right. Yeah, right. Instead of doing the work, they just rely on culture wars. And why is it that the policies of distraction and culture wars is sufficient? And why is the guy that's actually doing the heavy lifting and getting things done not getting credit, mm -hmm. where these other mm -hmm. clowns that just make a lot of noise and division and hatred and and anger and delusion uh, mm -hmm. get the attention? Well, let's see. Um, I think I'd attack that question in a couple of ways. One, I'd say it's important to recognize that we as a, in, in the United States have a long history of long disruptive uh, eras. And uh, this is certainly a disruptive era. But the significance of those disruptive eras is that they're often eras that are between two longer periods where an older ideology and party dominance is waning after several decades of dominance by that ideology and party. And a new one is trying to be born. And I, I, I think I've talked to you about this before, Ian, which is I think we're in one of those traumatic interregnums right now. And that Trump in his own way is a signifier of the interregnum, because what is he? He's a businessman who was never elected to public office of any kind, not dog catcher, not city council, nothing before he ran for the presidency and won. Now, who else in the 20th century or the last hundred years has fit that description, basically, of American presidents? Well, the one you think of immediately is Jimmy Carter, who was the governor of one pretty minor state of the union, but with zero federal experience in terms of governance. And it ended after one rather lame four years. Uh, just as Trump was taken, driven out of office after a pretty lame four years. But who's the other? And you think back, well, 
my God, it's, it's Herbert Hoover. And what do Hoover and Carter and Trump all have in common? They're all wealthy businessmen who claim that because they are not politicians, because they come from outside the political system, the, the swamp, as, as, as uh, uh, Trump describes it, that somehow they're going to bring their talents as businessmen to essentially reorganizing what they look at as a, a derelict corporation, uh, uh, which is the governmental system. But that's almost certainly wrong, and there's no evidence of business people, businessmen or businesswomen, fixing American government. I mean, there just isn't. Uh, what it requires is a sensibility that is fundamentally and supremely political in terms of mobilizing populations, forging strategic and tactical alliances and executing a policy on multiple fronts simultaneously that recognizes that on any given front, on any given day, there will be setbacks, but that that does not stop the advance that that larger strategy is meant to encompass. And I think that what we're seeing in Biden is the emergence, the chrysalis of a strategy for governance for the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and I think that by and large, when I look at the demographic change going on in the United States, it makes complete sense, which is, you know, every 30 to 40 years, changes in the population structure dictate that political leaders have to reach out to cast uh, new alliances by identifying new constituencies that hadn't been determinative before. And back in the 1980s, the Republican Party laid a long-term bet on the white South and its ability to also then deal with an alienated white working class. And for a while, that seemed to be doing incredibly well, so much so that the Democratic Party, uh, it's it, the official party, and many of its elected leaders retreated into this thing called neoliberalism that was kind of a uh, an echo of Reaganomics masquerading with a, a little more kindness. I mean, it was Bill Clinton who said the era of big government was over, not Ronald Reagan. And I think what you see in Biden is a deep refu refutation of the idea that the era of big government is over. Government today is over 40 percent of GDP. And I think that what what is lacking is a strong narrative that justifies that role for government by by virtue not just of individual programs, but by the strength that a government that is actually attuned to a democratic majority can bring in terms of, of benefit and, and advantage. That's that's what I think Biden is trying to steer the country toward. And that's, of course, what the Republicans are terrified that he might well do. So they're throwing the kitchen sink at him and keeping alive this idea that somehow, you know, Biden is incompetent. Biden is hated. Biden is a cripple. Biden is, you know, whatever. Right. The crime family, you know? Yeah. yeah it's, it's just, yeah. Right. And, and but, again, but, you know, politics is a blood sport in the United States. I mean, we're the, we're, <laughs> you're, you're from Australia. You know what rugby's like. I mean, yeah. we, be, we believe in blood sports. This is, this is right. not cricket. And right. I think that you're seeing a particularly brutal midfield battle going on right now. And it isn't determined who's going to win. It very well could be Trump. I mean, I'm not I don't have a crystal ball, 
But I, I would say to you that as someone who has watched politics for 50 years, I, it feels like some kind of deep tectonic shift is going on, and it's a shift away from the Reaganomic uh, uh, conservative agenda. But uh, you mentioned Trump in the context of wealthy businessmen and outsider. I, yeah. I th- think that might be a tiny bit too generous. I mean, he was a he was a, <laughs> a faux businessman. Only, yeah. only wealthy business. Is that what you're right. Yeah. It was all, yeah. he was a product of a reality TV show called The Apprentice, right. and in fact, his presidency was a reality tv show and so so right. was his campaign he knocked all the other right. people off the island right. and it was the most peculiar presidency because right. all he, he cares about is himself and his reviews it's like being an actor right. and not doing the right. performance but reading the reviews right. so he'd watch tv right. all day long to see right. what they were saying about him because right. <laughs> there was no there there i mean and that lead that leads me to this question about our political future in a way. Is it really right. about, if you go back to the Nixon-Kennedy debate, you know, Nixon's yep. five o'clock shadow did him in. So yep. Kennedy Alleged. was the, yep. was the right. more telegenic. Clearly, right. Bill Clinton was telegenic. Right. Barack Obama was incredibly telegenic. And Joe Biden is the opposite. So right. is that... I mean, in other words, are we going to get to the point where it'll be the the Republican actor versus the Democratic actor? So, yeah, yes, uh, and and no, maybe. Uh, what do I mean by that? The mediums that dis- distribute political information change over time, um, and since the Second World War. Uh, And uh, from the Second World War up to the Clinton era, the massive central distribution unit of political information was television, broadcast television. We then had a brief period where it seemed that there was the ascendancy of something called cable news. And there was actual talk about whether or not Ted Turner was going to become more powerful in terms of audience reach than the three major networks. Very quickly, before that thesis could even be worked out and tested in any real sense, you have the explosion in the early 21st century of this social media, where, in essence, we're going from broadcast television to cable television to uh, telephone, uh, iPhone uh, uh, television, if you will, or iPhone news, Um, and we're governed by that in a sense, in a crippling way. I don't like it. I don't think it's good for the country. And I think that the idea that, that there is some corporate intermediation that uh, through the phone, as there was through cable and as there was through broadcast television that endangers what I call a deeper democratic politics. Um, What do I mean by that? I think that one of the things that constrained television for a time in terms of its ability to turn uh, politics into uh, a TV game show was the fairness doctrine and a sense that the the federal government through the FCC uh, licensed broadcast television and could lift broadcast television licenses. So there was a kind of respectfulness uh, 
that went along with the way one questioned the president, the kinds of questions that the president was asked, the way that a speech uh, or a press conference was covered, that's entirely different from what you see today, which is, you know, all too often a, a bunch of 25-year-olds playing gotcha, gotcha, Mr. President, um, which is a crummy way to have what passes for news intermediate information between our leader and the rest of us. Uh, so I am worried. I, I think you raise a very, very important point, Ian, the, this point about the way in which somehow the elevation of the TV the the, 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 the the entertainment function of politics uh, is uh, is uh, playing longer than the structural or the reformist or the ideological in politics. Those are still present, but they're being hidden behind this mask of a demand for continuous entertainment. So, Richard, just in the last couple of minutes, then, let's turn to 2024. You were suggesting at the beginning that you may have an optimistic outlook. Mm-hmm. So I, I think for a couple of reasons. First, uh, I am trained as an economist, and I'm uh, so far impressed by the combination of the effects of the Biden budget plus the Fed's handling of interest rates to think that we are going to have an economic soft landing of significant sort this winter. Now, there's a mistake that the political class and the talking classes make, which is to focus on the consumer price index or other public indices of inflation, which I think are both have in the past over uh, uh, emphasized the rising role of inflation and right now are not fully conveying the sense of price increases that people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. I think that there is a certain amount of shock in the broad middle class about the speed with which so many prices for food, for entertainment, for travel, uh, you know, sort of the things that one thinks of as important for gasoline. Um, that, that and the shock has not worn off. And I think that goes to the heart of the economic concern that a lot of voters have. And if there is a quiet softening of prices in the wake of the work down of the official inflation index, that's going to serve Biden. Uh, not because people will say, oh, my God, Joe Biden's done a brilliant job. They, they won't give him credit in that way, but it will calm their fears and it will create what you want right now, which is don't change horses in the middle of the stream. Let's not talk about how old the horse is or whether the horse is lame in the front left leg or whether the horse can't run a quarter mile or whatever. Don't change horses in the middle of the stream. That's a very important narrative that lifts Biden out of concerns about Biden. So I think there's that. And I think that's really, really important because I think the heart of the big undetermined vote is is really an economic vote and whether people can see a viable economic future for themselves. 
Well, Richard Parker, I thank you so much for joining us on this New Year's Eve. Ian, always good to talk with you, and let's hope for a great new year at home. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. And he has an article at the American Prospect, What we don't measure but should, the case for GDP plus GDD. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a recovering Republican talking about his party's embrace of fascist language and a leader who admires Hitler and the worst dictators on the planet like Putin and Kim Jong-un. Hold on, world, because you don't know what's coming. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us on this New Year's Eve is Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Stolen Elections Then and Now. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike Lofgren. Good to be here once again. Well, thanks for joining us, Mike. And can I categorize you as a recovering Republican? Uh, That's probably fair. I'm somewhat more independent uh, than what you would consider a Democratic operative, although I would say they're probably the only game in town now, given our electoral system, uh, first past the post and the electoral college, uh, uh, I certainly can't countenance uh, a party that's become as extreme as the GOP, uh, the erstwhile party of Lincoln and Eisenhower. Well, doesn't that also reflect the fact that there's no longer a political center? And if there is, the political center is in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party is now a far-right party. Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, I think this is the case of the Overton window, moving everything to the right uh, by that sort of relativistic uh, measure. If the Republicans are so far right, then the Democrats must be left. But honestly, I can't see Biden as a leftist president, uh, and even these things like the infrastructure bill um, the, was pretty massive. That's no different than things like uh, the National Highway Act uh, that Eisenhower proposed. So he's more of a centrist, and I think anybody who considers himself a centrist Uh, is probably going to lean Democrat. Well, but the spoiler party 
that's getting on all of the ballots, the so-called no labels, they're trying to, you know, sell themselves or posture as the party of the centre. And they're going to be, obviously going to be spoilers. They're going to hurt Biden and help Trump. So what do you what do you know about it? It's it's basically Mark Penn and his wife, isn't it? I mean, and, and Joe Lieberman. What what motivates these people? What I mean, if you probably look at them, spite, a good deal of spite, and because uh, the caravan has moved on, and they're not on it. Uh, also, just an ability to get attention, and as I said at the beginning. Uh, if you have an electoral system, as we have in the United States, uh, third parties may work in, in European parliaments, but it's just a no-go in this uh, country. In fact, if you look historically, um, third parties only tend to help the more extreme of uh, the two major parties because they'll tend to pull all those swing votes and therefore uh, an extremist party that might have an agenda that the majority doesn't go with will nevertheless get the plurality, whereas sort of the sane and sensible voters can split their their votes uh, between the remaining major party and the third party. Now, I'm not saying ipso facto that their uh, their platform, whatever it is, is necessarily sane, but they're going to, like all third parties, uh, advertise themselves as the sane and sensible third way. So, Mike, you've been aware and written about the autocratic tendencies, to put it politely, of Trump. And now he's sort of channeling Hitler. Recently, CNN did a did a poll in Iowa with Trump voters, or likely Republican voters, um, and they were asked about Trump's Nazi statements about vermin and um, immigrants poisoning the blood of our country. And it turns out that I think 42% like it. They want more <laughs> Nazi rhetoric. They want more Adolf Hitler. So what's happening here to the country? How could this be tolerated? Well, I think there's two schools of thought on that. One would be that certain events in this country, beginning with 9-11, uh, going through Iraq, the 2008 financial meltdown, the Tea Party, uh, and then ending up in COVID, uh, has delivered just a series of psychological shocks to the uh, body politic and driven a lot of people maybe functionally crazy. Uh, such that they want uh, now overtly a dictatorship. Another school might say, well, it's all always been there, 
but there was a kind of political decorum that existed that these people never really uh, felt comfortable expressing that. I mean, there's some evidence for that if you go back to the 1930s uh, and you see Father Coughlin and Dudley Pelly and his Silver Shirt Legion and uh, Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, you know, there's some evidence for that, that uh, basically the Trump uh, candidacy in 2015-16 kind of took the lid off that and, you know, allowed these people to express what they've always been thinking. Uh, Of the two, you know, it... It's indeterminate in my mind which one is is more realistic. But if that's in the DNA, it's still, I think, about 30 to 35 percent of the country. So what explains the apparent passivity of the 65 percent that Liz Cheney is out warning that we are sleepwalking into dictatorship? Uh there's a natural complacency of people who are uh, average people who are sane and uh, basically good people. I mean, they have their own lives to live and they can't obsess with politics all the time. And it's also something out of their wheelhouse, out of their experience. People growing up in the post-war United States post-World War II went through, uh, you know, despite how we characterize the 60s, overall it was an extremely stable and prosperous era, and people are just not prepared for this. Um, so I don't necessarily blame them. Um, Perhaps if blame is to be cast, it's uh, they should have been better educated in school, in civics, about, yeah, there's all these uh, things in our democratic system, but let's take a look at the alternative and see how that, you know, would look to you. What's the alternative of democracy? We should be have been teaching more about what totalitarianisms are like. Um, But I think there's another thing that bears a lot more blame, and that's the media. Uh, It's become corporatized. I I have no doubt, but that uh, certain of the moguls who own the media, they say they're hands off, but uh, they wouldn't mind the tax cuts that come from a Republican administration, never mind if it's uh, dictatorial, as long as they get It's exactly the analogy of why the German industrialists uh, supported Hitler. As long as he suppressed those pesky unions uh, and gave them what they want in terms of subsidies and tax breaks, They were fine with it. So you also wrote recently at Common Dreams, the Republican Revolution devours its children. Kevin McCarthy was the Kerensky of the Republican Revolution. Gates is its Lenin. Uh, 
given the the analogies with uh, the Soviet Union, what is it about the Republicans and Putin? Why is there a pro-Putin caucus? Why are the Republicans holding up money for Ukraine? And Putin is crowing, by the way. The Kremlin is just... And and the state media is, is praising the Republicans. Uh, you would think that that would be a badge of dishonor, but I don't know what's going on there. Uh, partly, it's uh, a knee-jerk following of uh, Trump, because if he wants it, they want it. Even if they're insincere about it, they're going to vote the way Trump would want them to vote just as free traders suddenly become uh, supporters of tariffs. Another thing or reason why they do it is that uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction against the Democrats. If uh, a Democrat is uh, in the White House and he's supporting Ukraine, they have to be against it. Never mind whether it makes sense. They're going to be against it. That said, there's a third, and and this may apply in different percentages to uh, different members of the Republican conference. There's a faction that believes in authoritarianism, uh, and they've admired Putin for a long time because he is an authoritarian, obviously, and he says all the right things about uh, white Christian civilization and all that other stuff and against uh, gays and against uh, the supposed pollution of modern culture and, and so forth. I mean, he's having the uh, Metropolitan of Moscow in the Russian Orthodox Church bless the soldiers and say that if they die in battle, they'll go to heaven. I mean, that sort of thing is uh, catnip uh, for the Bible-thumper element of the Republican Party. Well, they've got uh, a major Bible-thumper now as Speaker of the House. Well, that's true. But that said, we're... so much in a kind of Superman's bizarro world that a man who uh, supports uh, the Creation Museum uh, of Ken Ham, that dinosaurs uh, lived contemporaneously with human beings, uh, who believes apparently in witches and demons. He's not conservative enough for the Freedom Caucus. They're already grumbling about him. (laughs) Well, what's your sense then of the year ahead? Because it's shaping up to be the most significant election perhaps since the Civil War. And, of course, we recently had... The most significant election since the last election... But we're having a lot of those. I think, uh, to paraphrase the uh, English historian Adam Toos, we are now in a polycrisis. And it pretty much started with COVID. And there have been 
you know, reverberations with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, China becoming extremely authoritarian, the Hamas-Israel war, uh, global supply chains in chaos, and the problem is each one of these crises magnifies the other. But the problem for Biden is that Putin, uh, he wants to drag out the war in Ukraine. He thinks he's going to win over the long term. And he obviously is banking on information warfare and, and active measures as opposed to the military prowess, prowess of the Russian military, which is showing itself to be pretty appalling and also cruel and disgusting in their in their torture and human rights abuses, not dissimilar from Hamas. And then you've got Netanyahu wanting to drag out the war in Gaza Absolutely. because because every day that he's in charge is a day he's not in jail. So you have these two horrible players on the world stage, Vladimir Putin and Bibi Netanyahu, who both want Trump to come back. Can they succeed? Absolutely. That's my opinion as well. Well, will they succeed? I mean, and what, what can be done about it? Yes, there's a genuine dilemma there with uh, the Israel uh, situation. It's hard to say whether, given the political facts on the ground, Biden could have done any different. But as it is, uh, he risks becoming a hostage of Netanyahu, who has every uh, incentive to drag out the war. Uh, and, and, and on the Russian side. Of course, the, the problem in, in Ukraine is similar. Uh, as long as the facts on the ground remain the same, a stalemate is almost as good as a victory for Putin. Not quite a victory, but um, it certainly uh, makes things more difficult for the West. So how do you see then this playing out in, in the next year? I mean, is there any way for Biden to get the arms that Ukraine needs? To, you know, in a at least subterranean to way that doesn't get much reported, uh, the U.S. and its ties to Europe are getting much closer. Uh, the Baltic states and the Scandinavian states, which mostly had kept at arm's length uh, the Scandinavian ones from the United States, are making all kinds of defense pacts uh, with America, and there's a much uh, closer cooperation. At the same time, uh, we're hearing that Russia's economy they put it on a full wartime economy, and partly the result of that, but also the sanctions, the economy is overheating. And you could have a situation like that in Germany in the First World War, uh, where the economy essentially collapsed. 
before the end of the uh, war. But so your... that's that's one possibility. That's not a guarantee. Right. But in your job as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees, you dealt with the Pentagon budget. And my understanding is that there's at least $10 billion in a slush fund that Biden could tap into for, for Ukraine? Yeah, that's difficult. The problem is we're getting kind of towards the bottom of the barrel unless we have new uh, new authorizations and appropriations for weapons because we have to hold back something in reserve because there's always China. So, in other words, we're running out of the stockpiles of, of weapons, right? And uh, having to... There's no question of that. In, in the issue of howitzer shells, for instance, uh, we have been way behind on that. And uh, Pentagon analysts who mainly worked on the basis of these wars in the third world, counterinsurgency wars, uh, sorely underestimated the expenditure of ammunition in a major conventional war. Right, but there's only one factory in Pennsylvania that makes the howitzer right, shells. Right, and, uh, and, and, and Joe Biden Scranton. Right. And it's and, a factory that's over 100 years old. My God. Well, but isn't it true that the Pentagon wants gold-plated programs like the F-35? They don't care about prosaic things like artillery shells. Uh, that has unfortunately tended to be the case. They would rather have uh, the big gold-plated pro program in prospect rather than... Uh, logistics and stockpiles of ordinary day-to-day -day stuff but that's the stuff that wins wars so d-day was less about weapons per se than it was about logistics hmm. well what's your prognosis then for this coming year as this war goes into a World War I standoff in the, in the winter where the ground gets hard and the mechanized vehicles and tanks and stuff could start rolling. I'll say with respect to Ukraine as well as with respect to what happens, uh, does the war drag on? Is there a ceasefire? Uh, the center of gravity in both Ukraine and Israel is in Washington, D.C. It's mainly a political issue here. And what gets decided here is what's going to affect what happens there. It's very similar to the early years of World War II, the real center of gravity was would America pass Lend-Lease and save the Allies? 
Well, it is extraordinary to see the pro-Putin caucus at work here in the House of Representatives and to a lesser degree in the Senate. It's Well, we had a pro-German caucus among the isolationists in 1940 and 41. So right. it's kind of like history revisited. Well, Rachel Maddow has been doing some work on revealing the, those kind of ties that were much deeper. They involved the U.S. senators and congressmen and and, a, and a, a German spy working with these officials inside the U.S. government. So that's an untold story. I wouldn't be story. surprised if it wasn't a parallel operation today. Right. Well, that's one of the things that uh, that you know I think is is a is a massive problem is how money based politics and people can be bought. You know, the Saudis buy all kinds of government officials when they leave office. Russian oligarchs, Putin regulates them and deploys them, and they're buying off all kinds of uh, American officials, not to mention, you know, Citizens United and the extent to which it's flooded our politics with money to the extent that our legislators are telemarketers. They spend their days dialing for dollars, not doing the people's business. Absolutely. They spend about 40% of their time doing that when they're uh, in cycle in an election year. But the real thing about Citizens United uh, and successive court decisions is not so much that it's a lot of money, it's in many cases, anonymous money. Right. That's the dark money Leonard Leo has been deploying to literally capture the judiciary and stack the Supreme Court with these far-right uh, majority. Correct. Right. So um, here I am rattling off all the terrible things uh, going on. And just in the last minute, Mike, anything you can give us here in terms of uh, a little bit of optimism for 2024? Well, we know there's all these appeals that will be made and delays, but the I think the sheer succession and frequency of rulings against Trump, against Giuliani, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court decision, uh, now there's a revelation that uh, the same thing happened in Michigan in terms of trying to extort election officials that happened in Georgia, and that may end up uh, being a legal case as well. That I think the sheer number and volume of these legal cases, that's, you can't imagine some sort of 12-dimensional chess where somehow this is all good for Trump. It's not. Well, Mike Lofgren, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Mike Lofgren, who spent 28 years working in Congress, the last 16 as a senior analyst on the House and Senate Budget Committees. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless, and the Middle Class Got Shafted. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Stolen Elections, Then and Now. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.